Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They are the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how we can work together to design a better world. Today, I'm delighted to introduce my next guest, David Gamble. David is the founding principal of the Boston-based firm of Gamble Associates. He was on the faculty at the Harvard Graduate School of Design from 2009 to 2021 and has previously taught at Syracuse University and Northeastern University. He is a former chair of the American Institute of Architects Regional and Urban Design Committee and the Boston Society for Architecture and Urban Design Committee. His research and writing investigates the effects of contemporary urban design and planning projects with a focus on creative implementation strategies to enable redevelopment. He is the co-author of Rebuilding the American City with Patty Hayda from Washington University and the editor of the recently released book, Idea City, which gathers insights from over 20 scholars and practitioners as to how to improve the greater Boston region for all. David is a graduate of Kent State and the Harvard Graduate School of Design and was the recipient of both the esteemed Gabriel Prize and the American Institute of Architects National Young Architects Award. Welcome to On Cities, David. I'm so happy to be speaking with you today. Thank you, Carrie, for the invitation. It's great to be here. David, how did you come to have an interest in architecture and the making of cities? Like a lot of people, I think, like a lot of architects, I gravitated to it at an early age. Most people that I can recall in my schooling and in profession tended to find architecture as a calling early on because it combines the best, I would say, of art and and science. Uh, I remember when my older brother told me that there was such a profession. And at the time, I lived in Ohio on Lake Erie, and we had a cottage on the lake. And I spent every summer just playing and building in the sand and outdoors. And I suspect on some level, uh, all of that uh, hands-on development of places and spaces uh, led me to really want to pursue it in in college as a profession. Uh, Most architecture programs require you to enroll uh, as an undergraduate in four to five years now of an undergraduate degree. So it's harder to transition into later in life, although there are graduate programs, of course, that bring students, undergrads from other professions to study it at, uh, at the graduate level. And then the second part of that to cities, I feel like that actually emerged later when I felt that if architecture is 
frequently thought of as the design of a building, I, I found myself gravitating more to spaces between buildings. And my undergraduate degree had a program in Florence, Italy, like a lot of colleges have programs abroad. Ours was in Florence. And of course, that experience, having grown up in a fairly small town in the Midwest, when you stumble upon the Duomo, you know, at seven in the morning and you suddenly realize what what urban space can be. Uh, I, I really started to think more about relationships between buildings, public spaces, transit, neighborhoods and, and cities or systems. So I don't think I knew that there was such a a mindset as urban design growing up, but uh, that European experience uh, led me to want to pursue that in graduate school. And, and in some ways, I've even transitioned from urban design to urban planning, looking, looking even at larger scales. So it's been a, I would say it's been a continuum uh, between architecture to urban design to planning and, and development. Yeah, I mean, I think you point to the importance of of travel and the education of certainly the architect and the urban designer, but maybe for everyone, because, you know, one can see something in a book, but I think that the value of experience, an immersive experience into a place like Florence, I think is transformative, certainly not only for architects, but for any young individual, you know, pursuing a, a career. So um, I, for one, can contest to that as well, having had a very memorable early experience in Rome. Um, so, David, I wanted, uh, before um, discussing your most recent book, Idea City, which I believe was released last week, in fact, um, I would like to ask you a bit about your book, Rebuilding the American City, Design and Strategy for the 21st Century Urban Core, which you co-authored with Patty Hayda. David, how does this book propose to address the challenges faced by contemporary American urban cores? Sure. So I, I'm a practitioner as well as an educator, and I was frequently questioned, I guess, about what are the good models for urban regeneration and where should one look and what scale do they work at and how do they overcome their obstacles? And it was really a lot of queries, I would say, in the classroom setting that made me want to experience, particularly in the American context, what are the range of strategies that one can use as a designer or as a planner to overcome you know, these obstacles? We have immense challenges uh, in our cities, as many of your previous guests have, have talked about. We've got pockets of despair directly adjacent to areas that are growing. We have transportation networks that are fragmented and underfunded. We have increased climate change that is exacerbating heat and rain and flooding across the country, wildfires. It's There are so many issues, social and racial strife in, in downtown settings. There are so many issues that are, I think, compounding the situation. And yet, at the same time, in many cities and even towns, there are really innovative processes at work that are trying to overcome those challenges. And so Patty and I undertook, and this was a labor of love, I, I think it took us six years, to create 
uh, a spectrum of 15 cities. So we looked at 15 cities across the U.S. Uh, from fairly small geographies and populations, Green Bay, for example, along the Fox River, uh, the City Deck project. Uh, we looked at all the way up to, well, a project I think more listeners might be familiar with, the Brooklyn Bridge Park in, in New York, which was a, a radical transformation of their waterfront in Brooklyn. And then we tried to identify projects that were catalysts, uh, often questioning catalysts for whom. We looked at a range of innovations, uh, trying to get a plurality of design strategies, so not just one way of looking at it. What are the variety of ways? Uh, we wanted geographic dispersion, so everything from uh, San Francisco to, to Birmingham, Houston, uh, San Antonio, Denver, uh, really a range of geographies, a range of scales. And what was, I think, most helpful, Carrie, is the conversations that we had with the individuals that were instrumental in the project's implementation. So about two-thirds of each case are conversations that we had with developers or nonprofits or politicians or residents trying to really capture the backstories and highlight the complexities uh, that surround redevelopment because there's always this tension between intervening in a place and at the same time recognizing that that intervention creates impacts and sometimes those impacts are more pronounced on disadvantaged communities. So the book is ultimately a, a combination of both a celebration of the successes, but also highlighting the challenges that are there and even the challenges that remain. It's a real push and pull. You know, it's um, as you state, the book is interested in implementable design strategies. And that makes perfect sense because you are not just an educator, but as you said, you're a practitioner. So you're not interested only in the ideas, but you're really interested in seeing how those ideas can be made manifest. And so um, your, your book identifies actionable objectives and then highlights the appropriate design responses to these objectives. And what I found so interesting about the book is that it did highlight lesser known examples of urban revitalization and successes that are beyond maybe some of these well-documented cities like New York or Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, so David, I was wondering if you could elaborate on a few of these examples from the book that illustrates successful examples of urban revitalization projects in America? Sure. Well, as I said, there were there were 15 that ultim ultimately made the cut. I think we probably looked at 40 at some point uh, and had to call it down. The book is organized by five themes, so uh, three sections of five, and there's some overlap between them, but the first section is about inst leveraging institutions towards growth. And we had a, a variety of institutions to do that. The urban river and so many cities now are looking back towards their waterfronts as places of reinvention, relying not on industry as in years past, but on quality of life. Uh, there is a chapter on leveraging the historic fabric and the scale and the texture of what's there now 
Uh, we looked at urban parks as a category, and then the last section is is really trying to leverage transit, transportation systems uh, towards regeneration. The two, I would say that were real outliers is there's a project in St. Louis in McCree Town, which, uh, you know, there's many interesting things happening in St. Louis, a legacy city, as they say. Uh, we no longer say Rust Belt. It's a legacy city. Uh, and there's, you know, many interesting projects happening. The one that we chose was a little counterintuitive because it involved a husband and wife design developer pair. The firm is called Urban Improvement Corporation. And they worked in an area that had been previously cleared. A redevelopment authority had erased uh, six blocks of historic uh, row houses next to the Botanical Garden. Some, some of your listeners may be familiar with this geography. Uh, and they moved into the neighborhood. They began to build uh, smaller, much smaller contemporary infill houses that were at the scale of the existing historic buildings using the same setbacks and scale and sizes, but doing it in a very contemporary way. They attracted a Montessori school to the environment and they basically created an antidote to the previous plan, which erased six blocks and basically put up large suburban uh, uh, houses that you would see really anywhere. It was a much more contextual process of engagement over the course of 15 years, I should say. This has been a long time uh, in the process, but I was there about a month ago and the neighborhood continues to stabilize. It's a, it's like a fascinating marbling of new and old. And I think that many cities are trying to find what makes them unique, how to leverage what's there, and yet, at the same time, allow for new development that can coexist with that. And I think that the, the McCree Town uh, Botanical Heights project in St. Louis is a fascinating example of doing new development in a contemporary and respectful way. The other case is in Buffalo, where I had actually worked on this for quite a while. In this instance, this was a, a collection of healthcare institutions that shared a territory downtown but never really planned cohesively. And uh, because healthcare is such a major economic driver in so many cities, these uh, hospitals and research institutions uh, decided to come together. They branded themselves the Buffalo Niagara Medical Campus. Uh, and again, this is right downtown next to some neighborhoods. Uh, and over the course of a few years, they really found a way to collaborate and plan together the master plan at the time highlighted a kind of a tertiary street that ran through the hundred acres of the site. And that tertiary street became a linear park, giving an identity and a place to each of the institutions. Uh, that then eventually became a catalyst for, for more growth. And from this started geez, in 2001. And by 2009, Carrie, there had been so much investment in in that campus. It went from basically through three million square feet to over seven and a half million square feet. We came back and updated the master plan and thought about a future framework that would build off of what's what's been there. They've now since nearly doubled again. Uh, 
In large part because the university relocated their medical school there. And it's just another example of a city that actually planned very well. Uh, it was a demonstration that not all cities are reactive, that there's ways to be proactive in, in your planning. And their comprehensive plan, the city of Buffalo, was fix the basics and leverage your assets. And one of those assets was, in fact, this medical campus. So it has evolved. It's still seeking to shore up the neighborhoods on either side, the, the seams between the campus and the neighborhoods. That still has a ways to go, but a great deal of progress has made. And I'm actually delighted to see how hard they have worked together with the city and with the adjoining neighborhoods to really become uh, an economic and employment anchor for the region. You know, as I hear you um, describe this, um, again, the building of cities is not instantaneous. It often takes, you know, a generation or two, but it's set in motion through critical decisions, um, whether they be the decisions of individuals, like in the case of McCree, or the decisions made by institutions, which are ultimately a collection of individuals. And so, um, I, I really just want to reiterate that it's one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book. And I would encourage those that are listening to go out and purchase the book because, again, it gives you very tangible outcomes to maybe and even examples that we can look to um, as we think about the future of not just our American cities, but perhaps even an international context. Yeah. Um, Let me just underscore that point, Carrie, because it is really one of the big takeaways was that the kind of incremental way in which cities evolve, it seems like it's on a project by project basis. And it belies the fact that over the course of a generation, downtowns and cities and even small towns can radically alter their physical form. And the notion that change happens quickly actually is very seldom the case. It really does take oftentimes a generation of effort on the part of many. Uh, I'm thinking of the Buffalo Bayou in, in Houston. It was 20 years of community-based advocacy and cleanup, uh, taking their origin point of their city along this bayou that's covered over by a spaghetti of highways networks and, and slowly, incrementally cleaning it up, making it more visible, demonstrating possibilities, bringing down art, very community-based. And then suddenly there's enough traction where other forces begin to come to play. And then, you know, now it's part of a much larger network of open space connectivity. That's, it's almost hard to imagine the city now without that, that connectivity or even the Atlanta Beltline. I mean, look what's, what that has done for the Atlanta region which was nothing more than a rail corridor, uh, you know, 20 years ago, a, a, vac yeah. a vacant industrial rail corridor. And now it's a huge open space armature that will include future transit. Absolutely. I think those are two additional great examples that you that you point to. And again, not the common ones that you talk about when you're talking about great examples for urban revitalization. So um, David, let's turn to your most recent book, Idea City, How to Make Boston More Livable, Equitable, and Resilient. You served as the editor of the book. 
and you gathered experts from both practice and academia to elaborate on several important challenges facing contemporary Boston. But before we get into this, um, I would like to ask you to briefly describe the city of Boston, um, maybe urbanistically or even geographically, because our audience is really an audience of international listeners. And while perhaps you and I know Boston quite well, um, I'd like to uh, have our listeners listen to your perspective or your description of Boston. So can you tell us a little bit about Boston before we actually delve into the content of your book? Sure, sure. The city is smaller than some people think, both geographically and in terms of population. Uh, Boston has around 675,000 people. That would be comparable more or less to, let's say, Seattle or Washington, D.C. Now, the greater region, if you include the outlying towns, it's up to 5 million people. But population-wise, it's one-twelfth the size of New York City. And geographically, it's 48 square miles. So it's, it is a very compact geography. Boston... Uh, it was initially the downtown was a peninsula and the city grew by cutting down its hills, uh, bringing in soils from the outlying suburbs and wharfing out continually in, into the Boston Harbor. So it's, it's a coastal city. Uh, you can be in southern Maine in an hour and 20 minutes. You can be in New York City to the south in, in three hours with good with not a lot of traffic or if you take the train. Uh, so the, it's a cosmopolitan center that has uh, outlying areas that are quite naturalized fairly quickly. The other important, I guess, uh, understanding is the city grew based upon its transportation networks. So initially, you know, going back 400 years, this was a maritime economy. And so the Boston Harbor, the wharfs, the, the transit systems that continued inland along the streams and the rivers. Economies grew along those natural waterways. And then in the 19th century with the rail lines, Boston has a what's called a hub and a spoke transportation network. So obviously the coast is on one side to the east, and then you've got a concentration of transportation networks that spoke out like a, like a wheel of a bike. And each of those uh, individual spokes connect to outlying areas. And so a lot of the, what's called the gateway cities of the region, the Lawrence and Lowell's were major industrial centers in the 19th century and still today have rail connections that bring them into the core of the city uh, in terms of the transportation. Uh, of course, in the 20th century, those transportation networks were highways. And so Boston like many American cities, has highways that ring it. Uh, and, and at the same time, there are a few highways that were stopped due to a lot of community advocacy. Uh, and so portions of the city remain intact where other cities weren't so lucky. Uh, I'm thinking of Dallas, for example, which is ringed by the highway or Really, so many American cities, Rochester, New York, I was in recently, and you you just see the imprint of that transportation network. So Boston even removed a portion of its elevated highway, a, a mile and a half that ran through the city. And over the course of really 40 years, 
was able to tear it down, depress it below grade, and what's called the big dig, people may be familiar with that metaphor, uh, a large linear open space uh, with together with a couple of boulevards, remove the highway and help to connect a little bit better the city downtown core to its waterfront. So it's a city whose urban pattern is discernible from those transportation networks. And if you ever fly into Boston, the airport is very close to the downtown and the airport itself was a landfill project, you know, in the mid 20th century. So it's a city that despite all of the anxieties about the current state of the transportation network, really evolved and grew along them. And, and they're still quite visible in the pattern of, of the outlying towns. Um, yes, I think that that gives um, a sort of a good picture for those that might be listening. And of course, beyond that, it has um, such a rich collection of architecture. I'm always reminded that when I walk through some of the sections of, let's say, Boston and Beacon Hill, um, a lot of the fabric is older than most uh, of Paris, actually contemporary Paris. So um, I think I think what we would like to do is take a short break, David, because really for most urban thinkers, Boston is a case study of how to do things right. Mm. At least from an outsider's perspective, it has so many seemingly great things. It's walkable, it's compact, it has transportation networks, but your book points to the current challenges that are facing Boston. And so when we return, we're going to continue the conversation with David Gamble, and he's going to elaborate on some of the challenges facing the greater Boston region today and how we can make life um, in the city more equitable for all. So don't miss the second half of the conversation. We'll be right back. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. 
We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. I'm continuing the conversation with my guest, David Gamble. Just prior to the break, we were talking about his new book, Idea City, um, how to make Boston more livable, equitable, and resilient. And just prior to the break, we were talking about how for most urban thinkers, um, Boston is really seen as a case study for how to do things right, David. Um, at least from from an outsider's perspective, um, it has so many things that we associate with good urbanism in the sense that it is walkable, it is compact, it has a robust transportation network. But your book points to current challenges that are facing present day Boston. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Sure. I, I love I love to live in the city because it is a place that most people when they visit think highly of it. You know, Boston has the first, we beat out New York City for the first subway. We have the first public park. We have the first uh, high school. You know, it's a it's a city that fancies itself in superlatives, right? And at the same time, it's one of the most income inequality cities in the country. Uh, yes, we have a good transportation system, but compared to what? You know, look at European or Asian cities where the transportation system is much more funded and, and well-maintained and operated. So it is one of the few cities that has uh, a, a subway system. But for many people who live here, it's frequently hard to get around. And there are significant uh, delays as a result of the age of the system. So it, it needs much more investment. Uh, we are a highly segregated city, uh, in part because of the highways that amplified the differences. But racially, the city of Boston, you know, is needs to be much better integrated. And we are one of the most vulnerable cities to sea level rise. So our relationship to the Boston Harbor, just a few years ago, during a king tide, there was a lot of water that went into the underground subway system. And we're not doing enough to guard against that. There is immense development happening uh, in what's called the seaport area adjacent to the Boston Harbor. But each project is trying to resolve that on a parcel by parcel basis. It's actually it cannot be done effectively thinking at a parochial or local local scale. It needs a much broader vision. So uh, I, I won't deny that the city is seen as all of those attributes that you gave it. and yet. When Patty and I were doing our initial research for rebuilding the American city, we couldn't find a good Boston-based example of an urban design project that had met all of those other criteria. The Big Dig was, you know, that started decades ago. It wasn't contemporary enough. Many people feel it still didn't do everything it should. Uh, Nubian Square, which is a, a African-American center, uh, has started to transform and they've done some interesting projects, but it hasn't yet turned the corner and really became the catalyst that uh, I think people hope it will be. And the imprint of design is also a little bit harder to see. So even before the rebuilding book was out, I was beginning to question what is it about the city of Boston for all of its positives that thwarts or stymies the potential to do something innovative? And so in, in light of that, Carrie, I gathered together 
some people I knew, others that I didn't know, but I wanted to know better to contribute an essay about the, the greater Boston region, not just the city, but let's say the greater Boston region, and how can the city overcome uh, those obstacles? So the way this is organized is thematically, uh, there are 11 essays by individuals who are looking at the city through a specific disciplinary lens. So if you think about zoning or regulation as one of those lenses or resiliency as one of those lenses, affordability, uh, even art as one of those lenses, the essays evaluate what's there now, what are the barriers to it, and how might one think in a more compelling way as the city once did about large-scale transformation. You know, Boston will be 400 years old in 2030. And there are times in the city's evolution where it's been very ambitious and other times when I think it's been less uh, able to reconcile the challenges that are there today. So ultimately, the book is really about the combination of disciplines because so many of these problems are interrelated and need more cross-disciplinary thinking and dialogue to overcome the challenges. Well, actually, let's delve a little bit more into these challenges, because in the book, um, the book states that the form of the city is directly dictated by the zoning laws that shape and incentivize development. And in Matthew Kiefer's chapter entitled Zoning 3.0, he points to the current shortcomings of Boston's zoning laws and proposes a new way to approach zoning in the city. Can you tell us about this approach? Sure. So because Boston is an old is an old city, uh, it's really hard to regulate change and to regulate the future in a manner that's predictable and uniform. If you're dealing in Phoenix or in, in a greenfield site with lots of geography and fewer existing things, it tends to be a little bit easier to regulate development. And in the context of a historic city, I think a lot of development happens through the prism of history. And that complicates things a little bit. It's actually one of the attributes of Boston, and maybe you agree with this, that's most fascinating is you have historic fabric directly adjacent to a contemporary building. And it's that, it's that tension between the two where both the history is recognized, but also there's a contemporary expression that I think are most the, some of the most interesting places in the city. Uh, so Matt's essay really recognizes that traditional zoning is about the separation of uses. And yet the places that most of us enjoy tend to bring uses together. And zoning by in and of itself is a pretty poor indicator of quality. <laughs> uh, you should also know that the city of Boston tends to have a lot of discretion about what gets built. It's evaluated really on a project by project basis, which leads to confusion, uh, leads to frustration amongst community members. It, 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 it becomes less predictable because you're never really sure what's going to get negotiated. And that arduous public engagement process is one of the reasons why it's so hard to get development to be completed here, because that takes time and time is money. And of course, development entities are often looking for ways to just understand 
what will be able to get built and advance that that ambition. So Matt's essay to answer your question is about striking a balance between predictability and flexibility, because you really need both to allow for development to occur in ways that are going to be uh, beneficial, where the benefits outweigh the challenges. I, I'm remembering in Miami, you, uh, Dwani Platter Zybert developed a form-based code, and that was one of the largest applications, I think, at the time at a municipal level. And when I was there uh, just a few months ago, I was seeing evidence of development, transit-oriented development <laughs> along your transportation system. And I I was curious as to, in fact, if if the community has embraced the notion that it's the form and the character of development that might be more important than just the uses. Yeah, I think there is a, a shift, um, certainly in Miami, uh, or maybe, I mean, I don't know if it could be stated um, nationally, but I, I do think that um, we are learning that historical zoning has caused segregation because it basically is not urbanism. It's really, it produces suburban environments that are basically one use. And, um, and I think that the vibrant cities that most of us love, whether they be dense, you know, urban cores, or quite frankly, they could be small rural towns, but they have a multiplicity of uses that make them a place um, that is more vibrant, where you can actually get all of your activities of your day done, you know, um, maybe even within walking or transit distance. So I, I do think that it is um, it is slowly taking hold in a place like Miami. Certainly, I think it's um, there are more examples uh, to be had in Boston, um, but I do think it's an ongoing challenge. Um, David, maybe we can actually talk about another important theme that is not only being faced by Boston or Miami for that matter, but probably nationwide in many of the large uh, metropolitan centers, which is the question of affordable housing, which Idea City, um, I think, addresses specifically with Tamara Roy's chapter entitled Living Compact. So why is affordable housing so difficult to develop in Boston today? And what can be done to change it? The... Uh the attributes that lead to making it difficult to develop in Boston would probably be very similar to most, I think, urban centers. It's it's high land costs, it's high high construction costs, it's uh, you know, arduous community review, it's uh, parking requirements frequently that make it very difficult to accommodate that on a on a parcel by parcel basis. It's scarcity of funding, and and I think a lot of it is an absence of mission-driven developers who are interested and able to create housing for a much larger demographic than just luxury or market rate housing. So much of what we're seeing in, in Boston is, is high-end residential construction because of those other impacts to getting it done. And so there's this huge mismatch between one and two person households, which is about 70% of the population. And yet two thirds of our housing stock are two and three and four bedroom apartments. And so there just isn't an inventory of the type of housing that we need, uh, workforce housing, affordable housing, transition housing. And yet Kamara's essay sort of talks about how 
in the 19th century, there were hundreds of these types of multifamily, affordable, and yes, even micro or small scale units uh, that allowed people to live here, um, you know, and afford it. So about 150,000 students <laughs> arrive in Boston in September. It's amazing. Of the 675,000 people, we have 35 colleges and universities, and that has an adverse impact on our housing inventory. So one way around this is to get a lot more housing within the university settings themselves. Uh, Tamara talks about increasing modular housing as a way to create greater densities and much smaller scales, uh, more subsidies for affordable housing and relaxing or even eliminating parking requirements that really, in many cases, thwart the potential to do the type of density. We need, I think, 50,000 housing units in the next uh, six or seven years to meet the demand. Yeah, in a way, uh, transportation and housing are inextricably linked because uh, similarly in Miami, parking really does become a kind of, uh, uh, you know, the barrier, let's say, uh, to be able to make certain uh, housing projects uh, viable. Um, but if your housing is being developed alongside robust transportation networks that no longer need you know, the degree of parking, then I think it makes a lot more of these smaller scale affordable housing projects um, more viable. So maybe we could discuss the question of transportation, um, because once again, <laughs> at least when I view it from Miami, Boston always seems like one of the best public transportation networks in America. You know, I wish we had Boston's transportation network in Miami. In Miami, we really only have one line that was recently yeah. extended. Um, but your book points to current shortcomings in the system. So what needs to improve um, moving forward in Boston? Well, it, it really is an issue of embracing the potential. And so ridership on the T, it's the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority. Our, our subway is called the T. Uh, it is part of that hub and spoke system. So these, these lines radiate out from the core of the downtown, which means if you're going from one end of the city to the other on the, along the periphery, you frequently have to come into the center of the city and then go back out along a different arm, which is just a peculiar uh, condition of, of, of that geometry. But we have, we have the infrastructure in place, Carrie, but it just hasn't been well-maintained. And it's a question of faith uh, in the legislature about providing the resources necessary to maintain it and, and to grow it. We are fortunate that there are these connections to the outlying areas. The MBTA actually has recently, this last summer, created legislation to incentivize and in fact require outlying towns to develop within a half mile radius of their transit stations. So another peculiar aspect of, of the New England region is this notion of each city having a lot of local control. And when you talk about density, at least in New England, people see that as a four-letter word. Density comes with all kinds of other uh, impacts, and those stymie the potential to do the types of things that we need to do, increasing density, increasing ridership, investing in transportation. So 
this tradition of self-government, which really had existed from the Puritans and the pilgrims when they came over, uh, that endures. And that's one of these peculiar aspects that hurt the region's ability to meet its needs because in many cases, towns can still, they have a town hall meeting a format. So residents are voting and advancing ideas literally in a town hall setting. And that becomes very difficult when we think about systemic challenges that might help to overcome issues like affordability or reliance on the car. So it's really the idea city's aspiration is to recognize that each of these aspects, let's just take transportation and its impacts on affordability and the zoning that overlays on top of these geographies that make it more difficult to do the types of things that we do, it needs these types of cross-disciplinary dialogues and partnerships that will address it. So yes, good transportation system, but have you been to Zurich <laughs> or Singapore? Or, you know, I, I think that the United States invests about 2% of its GDP in infrastructure. India does five and China is nearly 10. And when you think about that, that really is looking long-term. And as a culture, we need to move with a sense of urgency away from auto dependency towards these other modalities that are going to make life a lot easier. Yeah, I mean, I think you point to some um, pretty amazing international examples. Um, certainly in a case like Singapore, for instance, I think you mentioned Singapore, you know, they heavily tax the automobile. And so uh, by default incentivize, uh, and then all of that money gets poured into the public transit sector. Um, maybe that would be a harder sell in America. But I think what you're pointing to is, you know, where are our values as a nation? You know, and if we realize we have a housing crisis, we can't just be talking about the housing crisis. We have to say, we have to rethink our public transportation networks that would allow us to then facilitate and address some of the kind of challenges facing um, affordability and housing today. So I think you make a an important point uh, about how we have to also put policies in place and legislation that allows okay. us to um, shape environments beyond, let's say, immediate neighborhoods, right? Certainly in the case of transportation, that would be critical. Yeah. And in fact, uh, Carrie, there's an essay, um, Michelle Danila and Alice Brown talk about the fact that we tend to measure the wrong things in transportation. Levels of service, which is the amount of speed of traffic on a street or uh, fatalities between pedestrians and cars. And if we start to measure mobility beyond just the car, including public transit, including pedestrian pathways, that helps people think a little bit differently about efficiencies and about getting from point A to point B more effectively. Well, you know, I I really would like to advocate to our listeners. I mean, I think your book is just out and you can buy it on Amazon. I would recommend that uh, people go out and purchase the book. Um, I do think it gives you insights um, to the challenges currently facing Boston. Uh, and more importantly, I think it gives you ways of thinking about those challenges. I, I think similar to your first book. And again, I think that comes from your dual role as both an educator and a practitioner. Um, so perhaps as we're coming towards the end of the interview, what's on the boards right now, David? What are you working on? 
So in, in our in our practice, I, I just returned from Rochester, Minnesota last night. Uh, we're working on a riverfront plan. Rochester, Minnesota might get the World's Fair. They're they're one of five shortlist, the state of Minnesota, one of five shortlisted countries. And I think it'll be decided in a couple of weeks. But Rochester is a smaller town of about 120,000 south of the Twin Cities, but it has the Mayo Clinic which is seen as one of the best hospital uh, systems in the world, if not the best. And we're working on a riverfront plan adjacent to the clinic. Uh, Not surprisingly, in the 70s, the city walled off its river with a couple large concrete uh, walls. You can't even see the river in many cases downtown. So we're helping to tear down a garage to reorient the city back, like in Houston, back to its origin point along the Zimbro River and naturalize that edge. Uh, I'm working in Louisville on a downtown plan. Uh, We're trying to find ways to bring people back into the city. You know, COVID has lingering impacts in relationship to where people work and what they need in a downtown. So a lot of cities at the moment are recalibrating the relationship between office and residential development and looking for ways to reinforce the quality of the public realm that makes an attractive place to be and a safe place. Um, that's that's in our practice. We do a lot of design review, a lot of design guidelines. Uh, and then in terms of uh, the next book, uh, you know, 40% of the population in America lives along the coast, but the vast majority of the North American landscape is comprised of municipalities of less than 50,000 people. And so Patty and I are actually nearing completion on a book about towns and how municipalities of smaller populations are also transforming. And Carrie, again, I, I have to say, travel, when we couldn't travel during COVID, I, I, I realized how energizing it can be. And a lot of why I do this is because it allows me to see places that I, I wouldn't see otherwise. And we're 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 doing research in Caldwell, Idaho, where it's next to Boise, where they've daylit a stream that runs through its downtown. Again, this has taken 20 years, but they uncovered the river. Uh, it's it's in big agricultural country, so there's a large migrant population that is bringing a Mexican culture and a, a, a Latin and South American culture to a state that's largely white and quite Mormon, actually, in Boise. Uh, North Adams here in Massachusetts has the largest contemporary art museum in the country, Mass Mocha. That complex is in a former mill that in the mid-20th uh, century was a center for transistors and, and technology. And before that, it was a center for uh, textile mills. And so this is a huge economic engine in a region that is, uh, you know, has a lot of other cultural attributes. So we are uh, looking at 10 different towns across the U.S. and trying to find ways. What are what are they doing in, in much smaller populations to transform and address their challenges? 
Well, I think it's such an important book, um, David, because we can't just be talking about the big cities. We really have to be looking at the small towns that you're mentioning. And I, for one, look forward to reading it. So I ask all my guests this one simple question. Um, So maybe if you could give me your answer, David, in about 30 seconds. Um, David, what is your favorite city and why? Uh, I... (laughs) I'm going to say it's the city I'm working on now. How's that? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it would be easy to say like Hong Kong for its density and landscape, uh, Barcelona for its public realm, uh, you know, Paris for its, its river and its, its uh, continuity. But I really feel like there's so many cities and even towns in Africa and South America and Asia that I haven't seen that I, but I, what I enjoy most and what I think that we often help communities do is understand what makes them special and, and leverage those things. Because when you live in a city, you may not always recognize those attributes. And a lot of what we do and when I travel, I try to find those things that make a place different and amplify those, make them more visible and build build on what they have. So I, I'm i going to let's let's save that for another conversation. But I, I <laughs> too many options. <laughs> Well, David, thank you so much for joining me today. We were both graduate students at Harvard's Graduate School of Design some time ago, and I'm delighted to hear about all of your recent successes, actually your longtime successes, but I'm happy to be sharing it with a broader audience. Um, Please join me next week uh, where I'll be speaking with architect and writer Marwa Al-Saboni. We're going to discuss her current life in Syria and her book, The Battle for Home, that describes how architecture and the design of cities can either foster a more peaceful society or contribute to rising tensions that can ultimately lead to war. Um, Please listen to all previous episodes on Spotify, Apple iTunes, or anywhere where you get your podcast. And please follow us on the On Cities uh, uh, podcast on Instagram. I look forward to connecting next Friday and have a wonderful week. Thanks again, David. Thank you, Carrie. This was great. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 